You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Good morning. Welcome once again. Please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 11. So in your New Testament, the book of Romans, and we're in chapter 11. We've been studying through the book of Romans for the past several weeks, even months now, in our study called Saving Grace, in which we're going verse by verse through Paul's letter to the Romans. It's the way we like to study the Bible generally here at Whitefields. We like to go through entire books of the Bible and just it's our, it's our way of almost letting God speak to us. And, and rather than just trying to pick out our favorite topics or whatever we might do, we just say, hey, let's go through a whole book and let's just soak it all in. And let's take it in context and let God speak to us. So we've been studying through Romans and we have now made our way all the way to chapter 11. And, and hopefully by today, we're going to work our way all the way through chapter 11. So let's go ahead and begin this morning by reading our text which comes from Romans chapter 11. We'll read verses 1 through 8 and then 25 through 27. So Romans 11, starting in verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they killed your prophets. They have demolished your altar and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at this present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And we'll read from verse 25 through 27. Lest... You be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And we pray it this morning. Lord, you would help us to understand it. These are... Uh, some difficult passages in a way to understand, but Lord, we pray you'd help us to understand it. And we pray also beyond just understanding, Lord, that we would apply these truths to our lives, that there would be something in here that we can take away. And Lord, that our lives would be changed by this study as well. But even above that, Lord, we pray that as we study these things, as we consider who you are in your character and in your ways, Lord, may we be driven to worship you all the more. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, sometimes there's more to a situation than meets the eye, right? You've heard that phrase before. So I think about this example. Imagine two college students, a boy and a girl, they're talking and you, you can't hear what they're saying, but it, it seems obvious from their body language, you can kind of figure out what's going on, right? Clearly they're boyfriend and girlfriend and, and clearly they're having an emotional conversation and, and the boyfriend is leaning in close and he's furrowing his brow and after he speaks, his girlfriend just bursts into tears and, and kind of crumples up. And it's obvious what's going on here, right? I mean, you can see it. You can observe what's going on. And, and so what do you do? You go and you confront that boyfriend and you say, hey man, I saw what you did there. You just made her cry. You're a monster. Like you should be ashamed of yourself. How could you treat her like that? You need to treat your girlfriend better than that. And to which that guy might reply, well, actually there's more to the story than, than meets the eye. See, her grandmother just died. And I was telling her that her grandmother's very proud of her. And that's what led her to cry. It wasn't that I was being mean to her. I was actually being nice. You see, sometimes we need a little bit more information about something to really understand it, to be able to make a fair judgment about it, because otherwise we might be inclined to misjudge that situation based on just what we see or what we observe 
or we might be inclined to draw the wrong conclusions about it. And that's the case with the subject that we are looking at today here in Romans chapter 11. The subject is the Jewish people. In the Old Testament, the Jews were God's chosen people. God made covenants with them and made promises to them. But now in the New Testament, Jewish people by and large have rejected Jesus as the Savior, as the Messiah, and they seem to be enemies of God's work and and opposed to what God is doing. And it would seem like as a result of that, God has kind of moved on past them and moved to other people and the rest of the world. And here in Romans 11, Paul tells us, well, there's actually more to it than meets the eye. There's more to this situation, more to this issue than might meet the eye. And in this chapter, Romans 11, what Paul does is he pulls back the curtain a little bit and gives us a look behind the scenes so that we can see a few things. First of all, we're going to see that God isn't finished with the Jewish people. He's actually working out an elaborate and a wonderful plan, which when you see it, you can't help but be in awe of God, and it causes you to worship him even more. And that's, that's what we'll see here in this chapter. So the title of today's message is Understanding Israel, and this is part three. So Understanding Israel, part three, and this is the tree and its branches. That's what we'll be talking about today. Now again, this is the third part of, of a kind of three-week mini-series within our series. as a series within a series. And it's, it's the third part of this mini-series we're doing called Understanding Israel because Romans 9, 10, and 11 are all about understanding the role of Israel in the Bible and in God's plan for salvation. Now the reason why Paul brings up Israel at all at this point in his letter is this. For the first eight chapters of this letter, Paul has been talking to us and telling us about the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done for us, what God has done for us in Christ, and how despite all of our shortcomings and our unrighteousness and our sins, God has responded with mercy and grace, and he's poured out love and grace by sending Jesus to us to be the fulfillment of all of God's righteous requirements on our behalf, and then to die on our behalf and take the judgment for our sins. And we were told that we can be sure of this salvation because God is a promise-keeping God. He keeps his promises. And God has chosen us to be his people. And there is nothing in heaven or on earth that can separate us from God's love. That's all great news, right? Well, yeah, except there's one thing. What about the Jews? Well, I mean, what about the Jews? I mean, when we talk about being God's chosen people, I mean, weren't the Jews God's chosen people? And didn't God make a bunch of promises to them as well? But, but the question is, are those promises still valid? Uh, now that most of the Jews have, have rejected Jesus, are they still God's chosen people? Are God's promises to them, do they still count? Because if not, then it would seem that maybe God doesn't actually keep his promises. And maybe they're really, it doesn't really mean anything to be the chosen people of God if they were the chosen people and now they're not. Like, if, if God doesn't keep his promises, then what kind of God is he anyway? And, and why should we believe anything that he says? And if God gave up on Israel, then how do I know that God won't someday just give up on me? So if God showed mercy and, and favor to Israel at one time and then turned his back on them, well, who's to say that he won't do the same to you? And so these are very important questions that he deals with here in chapters 9, 10, and 11. And they're, they're what we're talking about here in this mini-series. And this is the last part of it before we move on next week to chapter 12, in which we deal with these questions about Israel. Here's what we're going to see in this section. First of all, in the first 10 verses, we're going to see this. There's more than meets the eye. So there's more than meets the eye. There's more happening. There's more going on. Secondly, we're going to see God's elaborate and wonderful plan for salvation for the world. And then we're going to see, finally, throwing fuel on the fire. We're going to talk about fuel for the fire in the last part. So there's more than meets the eye. 
you know, for centuries, for thousands of years, actually, the Jewish people had been waiting for and, and are still waiting for the Messiah, the, the one they call the Messiah, the Savior who will come and save their nation and save the world. And they had the scriptures, and they had the scriptures that talked about this person. The Jewish scriptures were all about who this person would be and building up and ramping up to the coming of the Messiah, who he will be, what he will do, where he will be born, what family he will be born into. But then here's the irony of that. They waited all this time. There was all this great buildup, and then Jesus came, and they rejected him. And so in chapter 11, verse 1, Paul asks the logical question that, that we have to ask, which is this. Since Israel rejected Jesus, does that mean that God has rejected Israel? I mean, when Israel rejected Jesus, did God say, okay, then, then I'm taking back my promises and you're no longer my chosen people. Instead, I'm going to turn to other people who actually do want me and do want what I'm offering. And, and so God turned to the Gentiles because that's what it seems has happened. By the way, a Gentile, for those of you who aren't familiar with that term, it just means anybody who's not a Jew. So in the Jewish mind, the world's broken up into two categories, Jews and everybody else. And the Gentiles are everybody who's not a Jew. And so Paul says in verse one, I ask then, has God rejected his people, Israel? And he says, by no means, by no means. It might appear that way, but there's actually a lot more going on than what might meet the eye. God has not through with Israel. Even though they've rejected him, God has not finished with them. Even though they've been faithless, God is still going to be faithful to his promises that he made to them. Now, this is an important message for you and I to take note of as well. See, this isn't just a matter of theological curiosity, right? Sometimes we can have these theological curiosities. We say, oh, well, it'll be interesting to find out more about this topic and then I'll know a lot about it. Well, this isn't really just a matter of theological curiosity to know all this stuff about Israel. This has direct application to our lives as well. It should be of supreme encouragement to you and to me to know this, that if you belong to God, if he's placed his love on you, then he's not going to give up on you. You may stumble at times. You, have, you may have moments where you, you fall short and you mess up, but God is faithful and our trust in God is not in the strength of our grip, how tightly we're holding on to him. Our trust in God is based on his grip, how tightly he's holding on to us. And so verse 1 tells us that, in, that despite how things might appear, God has not rejected Israel. He says another question in, in verse 11. He says a second question. Again, I ask, did Israel fall or did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? And he answers that question as well. Not at all. Which tells us this, two things. Israel's rejection of Jesus is neither total, nor is it final. So two things, it's neither total, nor is it final. And what we're going to see here, first we're going to see that there is an Israelite remnant in the present day, and there is an Israelite recovery that is coming in the future. So there's a lot more going on with Israel than what meets the eye, he says. First of all, there's a sizable remnant in the present. Paul says that at the end of verse 1. He says, look at me, I myself, I'm an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, not all Jewish people rejected Jesus. That's what he's saying. There's a sizable remnant, and that's true even today. I was doing a little bit of reading on it. You know, there are about 15 million Jews in the world, and of those 15 million Jews... About 500,000 of them are what we call Messianic Jews. That's Jews who embrace Jesus as the Messiah. So that's roughly like 5% of all Jews in the world. Now that might not sound like a lot, but when you consider that a, a very large portion of Jewish people in the world today are agnostic or atheists, they're non-religious, then that number actually is, is much more than it might sound like at first. That's why in verse 2, Paul reminds us of a story, a related story from the Old Testament involving the prophet Elijah. 
This story is found in 1 Kings chapter 19. See, Elijah lived at a time of great apostasy in Israel. Everyone in the nation, including the, the, the top leadership, had turned away, and they had turned away from the, their God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Yahweh, and they had turned to a pagan God called Baal, and they were worshiping Baal. And Elijah felt like everyone had turned away from God except for him, that he was the only one left. Elijah had even performed great miracles. He had called down fire from heaven. During a drought, he had prayed for rain. And after years, immediately after he prayed, it began to rain. And so in spite of these miracles, the nation as a whole had turned away from God. People were not receiving Elijah's ministry and they were worshiping this pagan god, Baal. But not only that, there was a wicked queen named Jezebel. And Jezebel essentially sent assassins to go and kill Elijah. So Elijah's running away. He runs to the mountains. He feels depressed. He feels discouraged. He feels like a failure as a prophet and as a, as a man of God. And he sits down under a tree and he literally says, God, please kill me now. Like I'm so discouraged that I just want to die. And he told God, and here's why, because I'm the only one left, God. No one else. There's no one else who's still faithful to you. No one else who still serves you and trusts you. I'm the only one. Everyone else has turned away. But it says, what did God reply to Elijah? It's there in verse 4 of Romans 11. It says this. God said, look down in that valley. And he's up on the mountains. You know, he's looking down in the valley. And God says, there are 7,000 people in that valley who have not yet bowed the knee to Baal. And what he's saying is this, that just like in the time of Elijah, it might seem that all of Israel has turned away and rejected the Messiah, but there is a still a significant remnant that's bigger than you might think of Jews who, who have not gone that way, who, who are faithful to God, who have received the Messiah. God always has a remnant. He always has throughout history, and he still always will. There will always be a group within the larger group of Israel who don't turn away from God, who do pick up what he's putting down. See, there's a believing remnant. And there's, a, there's an important lesson in there for us in this. And that is this. You know, you and I, we don't always see the whole picture. We judge things based on what we observe or based on what we feel or what we see. But we don't always see the whole picture. We don't always see everything that God's doing behind the scenes. And so sometimes, of course, we can feel like Elijah, right? Like we can look at our circumstances and, and we can draw the wrong conclusions based on what we see and what we feel because we don't see the whole picture. We don't know everything that God's doing. And you might look at your circumstances today, whatever they are, and you might feel like God has abandoned you. You might feel like nothing good can possibly come out of what's happening in your life right now. But I want you to remember the story of Elijah and remember this. You don't see the whole picture. There might be more than meets the eye. There might be a lot of stuff going on that you don't even know about that God is up to and doing in your life. And so rather than relying on our perception of how things are, or what we see and what we feel, what we need to do is walk by faith and not by sight. That's what that means, which means that we trust in God's promises. Promises like this, that, that if you're the child of God, he will never leave you, he'll never forsake you, that he is indeed working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And in the same way, when it comes to God's dealings with the Jewish people, there's more going on than what might meet the eye. Paul says in verses 5 and 6, So too, at the present time, there is a remnant of Jewish people who trust in Jesus, chosen by grace. And he says, if it is by grace, then it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. In other words, God gives us his grace, not because he sees something in us that says, oh, I, I need that guy on my team. I need that girl on my team. It isn't because of something that he sees in us that we've earned it or merited it or done anything. 
that he would give it to us. He just chooses. The reason he gives his grace is in him, not in us. See, justice means getting what you deserve. Mercy means not getting the judgment that you deserve. But grace means getting something good that you don't deserve. See, grace means unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor. You know, for example, if one of my children performs well in school, and so in, so in return for that, I give them a reward. That's not grace. It might be kindness, but it's not grace. See, because I was doing it because they did something in order to merit it. They did something. Uh, it was a reward for good behavior. But grace is when I do something for my kids, not because of anything that they've done or, or earned or achieved, but simply because I love them and I want to do it. The reason is in me, not in them. And the Bible says that that's how God relates to us. It's on the basis of grace, not on the basis of our works. And what that means is that you don't have to work to earn God's love. Do you know that today? I really hope you do. You don't have to work to earn God's love. You don't have to work to earn God's blessing. You don't have to twist his arm in order to get him to do things for you. See, God gives us his love. It's a gift of grace. He pours out blessing on us and we receive it. See, not because we earned it or we deserved it, but simply because of who he is, because he's a good God who loves his kids. And when you really get that, you can't help but respond to it. You respond to it in worship. You respond to it in serving him, in seeking to know him, in giving him your life. See, this is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion in the world, every other belief system in the world. This is what makes Christianity absolutely different. See, every religion in the world is based on this basic idea that says this, you act and God responds. You initiate, and God responds. And so here are the things that you need to do in order to get God to give you what you want him to give you. And so recite these prayers, do these good deeds, go on this pilgrimage, give this amount of money. And if you do these things, and you do them well, and you do them often and consistently, then God will see that, and he will respond to your actions, and you can kind of get him to do the things that you would like him to do for you. But the gospel is different. It's a different way of approaching God, which is based not on us initiating and God responding, but it's based on God initiating and us responding. It's a way of re relating to God based on grace. See, what the gospel says is that God acts and we respond. See, it's the, it's the opposite order. And it's not at all splitting hairs. It, it has very different implications for how we live our lives. That God acts, God initiates, and we respond. In other words, the reason we pray, the reason we study God's word, the reason we worship, the reason we give of our finances, and the reason we serve and do, do things for him, anything that we do, it's not in order to get him to do something for us. See, that's manipulation. If I'm like, okay, well, I'll do this if you do this in return. No, it's we do it because he has already done so much for us, and we're just responding to that grace. And it's a completely other way of approaching the whole thing and, and approaching God. And it's what sets Christianity apart from every religion, every belief system in the world. It's the teaching of grace, that we are the ones who respond to God. It's not God who responds to us. And maybe there are some of you here today, and that's a shift that you need to make in your thinking in your mentality, in the way that you approach God and think about God. You're still trying to relate to God on the basis of your works. You're still trying to twist his arm or direct him in a certain way rather than responding to what his grace is and, and responding to him and what he's done. It's an absolute game changer, this idea of grace. And so what Paul is reminding of, us of here in, in verses 5 and 6 
in talking about grace is this. Salvation is not a reward that you get for good behavior. Salvation is a gift that you receive by faith. So salvation isn't a reward that you get for good behavior. It's a gift that you receive by faith. And that's what we see in verses 7 through 10. He says this, What then has Israel failed, or Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking? The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. In other words, those who rejected the gospel of God's grace because they insisted that they could earn their salvation and earn God's love and blessing, they were hardened. Not only were they hardened, but they were also blinded. It says this in verse 8, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. The point here is this. When you reject the grace of God, you become hardened and you become blind. And you might wonder sometimes, why would anybody not want God's grace? Like anybody would be presented with the gospel and be like, thanks, but no thanks. Why would that be? Well, Paul's been telling us the answer to that in chapters 9, 10, and 11. He said, in the case of Israel... And in the case of many people today, the reason they rejected the message of grace was because it offended their pride. It offended their sense of, of self-righteousness and self-justification, right? They liked the feeling that God liked them more than he liked other people because they earned it and they deserved it. They liked the feeling uh, of, of, that they could pat themselves on the back and say that they had earned God's grace, but the gospel came along and said, no, that, don't you understand? That's not how grace works. Grace isn't earned. It's by grace. It's not by works. And that offended their pride. And a lot of people stumble over this even in this present day. We say things like, you know, I don't need charity. That's un-American. I get what I deserve. And, and, and this idea that we need to receive the gospel it requires us to humble ourselves. Because the gospel requires us to admit that we are unable to save ourselves, that we absolutely need a savior and that we need to be forgiven. We need a, a savior to save us from our sins, to save us from ourselves. And the question is this, will you humble yourself and admit your need and receive God's grace? When you reject God's grace, what we see here, you become hardened and your eyes become blinded. And that's what has happened to Israel as a whole, by and large. Now, of course, not every individual, but by and large. Now, God uses, though, it says in this next part, God even uses the hardness and the blindness to accomplish his purposes. That's what we see in the second section, an elaborate and wonderful plan in verses 11 through 32. Paul says in verse 11, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they, may they might fall? And he says, by no means. See, there's a difference between stumbling and falling, when, right? When you stumble, it's, you can be tripped up but you haven't yet fallen. You can recover from a stumble, but a fall implies finality. And so Paul tells us here, Israel's rejection of the Messiah, Jesus, it's, no long, it's not total, right? Not everybody has rejected him, nor is it final. There is a Jewish remnant in the present, and there will be a Jewish recovery in the future. But even now, God is using their rejection of the gospel as part of his elaborate and wonderful plan to bring salvation to the world and ultimately to them as well. So check out what he says in verse 11. Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their, will their full inclusion mean? 
Now I am speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus to save some of them. So God is using the Jewish rejection of Jesus as a tool to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, everybody else in the world, so they can be saved. And ultimately, then God is then going to use the Gentiles to bring salvation to the Jews again, so they can be saved. This elaborate and wonderful plan, which will ultimately result in many people, both Jews and Gentiles, being brought into God's family and being saved. So you can think about this in three stages. There are kind of three stages that he lays out here. Stage number one is this. The Jewish rejection of the gospel a Jewish rejection of Jesus, has led to the gospel being preached to the Gentiles. That's stage one. And we see that in the book of Acts. So we see that after Jesus' resurrection, he gave his disciples this great commission. He told them, go into all the world, make disciples of every nation, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to do everything that I commanded you. And he told them again right after that. He said, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and you are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and even to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so he sent them out on this great commission. So is that what they did? Did they go out into the whole world? No, at least not at first. Not at all. For several years, Christianity remained in Jerusalem. Despite they had the, this great commission to go into whole, the, the whole world, they stayed in Jerusalem. And it was considered, you know, Christianity was just considered kind of a sect of Judaism which recognized Jesus as the Messiah. But all the Christians were Jews. If you wanted to be part of this Christian movement, you had to move to Jerusalem. But here's what happened. The unbelieving Jews, the ones who rejected Jesus, they started looking at the Christians and saying, hey, what you guys believe is something that's really different than what we believe. And so they began persecuting them. And we see there in the book of Acts that it was actually the persecution of the Christians which was the catalyst for getting them out of Jerusalem and obeying this commission that God had given them to take the gospel beyond Jerusalem into the surrounding area where there were other people, where there were people who weren't Jews, who were Gentiles, and so they could hear about Jesus and they could believe. And so God used the Jewish rejection of Jesus as the catalyst for his plan to bring the gospel out into the Gentile world. And that's stage one. That, that's already taken place. Now, stage two is kind of where we're at today. That the Gentile reception of the gospel is meant to stir up jealousy in the Jews. The Gentile reception of the gospel is meant to stir up jealousy in the Jews. You know, I was just thinking about jealousy. My, my wife teaches uh, in the preschool class sometimes. She was in there last weekend. And we have a two-year-old daughter in that class. And so last weekend, Rosemary was telling me that when Hope, our daughter, saw her playing with the other kids, she got really jealous. She's like, hey, that's my mom, right? And so she went over there and she started holding on to her and she insisted that Rosemary, you know, pick her up and hold her in her lap because she wanted everybody to know, hey, this is my mom, right? Like, she belongs to me. You guys can go get your own mom. She was jealous that she had to share her mom with other kids, and that's the same idea here with the Jews, that the idea is that they would look at, at us Christians and they would say, hey, what do you think you're doing? Right, those are our scriptures. You know, Yahweh, that's our God, right? Like, those are our stories, right? Abraham, Moses, that's our stuff that you're taking. Yahweh's our God. All this Messiah stuff, that's us, man. That's not you. And the idea is that they would look at that and they would become jealous. But beyond just having their stuff, it goes one step further. The idea is that they would look at us and they would see all the benefits that we enjoy as Christians. Forgiveness, love and joy and peace, and they, that we would be so full of life and power that they would look at us and they would say, I want what they have. 
I want that kind of relationship with God. What they have is what we were always meant to have. Now, now think about it this way, too. On an individual level, on a personal level, the Christian life, if we're really living it, it's meant to make other people jealous in a positive way. So it should make other people jealous that when they look at us, they would say, there's something different about those people. There, there's something that they have that I want too. There's a love that they have. There's a sense of joy that they have. There's a sense of hope. There's a sense of peace. Even when they're faced with difficult circumstances, there's something unshakable about those people. And they're quick to forgive each other. They're, they're quick to admit when they're wrong. They're generous. They're gracious. And they have this incredible community of people who love each other and support each other and take care of each other. I want that too. I, I want to be part of something like that. I'm not sure if, I'm, if I believe what they believe, but I certainly want what they have. They have so much confidence, right? They, they're not even afraid of death. Right? They're not even just caught up with themselves and obsessed with themselves. They're always looking to others and serving others. And they would say, you know, I want to be part of something like that myself. And so I want you to ask yourself this question, just kind of between you and God. Does your relationship with God, does it make other people jealous? Would it make other people jealous? People who know you and who know you well, would they look at your life and see the effects of the gospel and God's grace in your life to the point where they would say, I want what you have? See, Paul illustrates this second stage that we're at right now with an illustration in verses 17 through 24. He describes an olive tree. Now, throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament, the olive tree is a picture of Israel. It's mentioned several times that God uses the olive tree as a picture of Israel. And so Paul says, I want you to imagine an olive tree which represents Israel. And some of its natural branches have been cut off and some wild branches from, from another plant have been grafted in. And he says that's the situation that us Gentiles are in, that some of us non-Jewish people, we have been grafted in. We've become part of the people of God, God's chosen people. And God's salvation is for all people in all the world, but the root and the body of the tree is Jewish. It's Jewish in origin. And therefore, what he's saying here is there is no room for Christians to be anti-Semitic. Now, now, you know, I don't think there's a, a big hotbed of Christian anti-Semitism here where we live in our day and age. But historically, that, that is kind of a blight on Christianity, is that there have been times in which Christianity has been associated with anti-Semitism. And remember, Paul is writing this letter to Rome, to the Christians in Rome. And anti-Semitism existed in that day as well. They saw the Jewish people as these weird people who have a strange religion. They're from somewhere far away, and they're always trying to break away from the, the Roman oppression. And so Jews were persecuted, especially in Rome. And Paul wants the, the people in Rome to understand this, that as Christians, there's no place for anti-Semitism. We need to have an appreciation for everything that God has done for us and given to us through the Jewish people. You know, one of the reasons why people have justified anti-Semitic attitudes historically is that they've, they've looked at the Jewish people and they've said, but they killed Jesus, right? They're Christ killers. And, and that has been kind of a chant that anti-Semitic people have had historically. Oh, you Christ killers, you know, you, you rejected Jesus and, and God has rejected you. But from a biblical perspective, that idea that the Jews are responsible for the death of Jesus, I mean, that's absolutely ridiculous. According to the Bible, you know who's responsible for Jesus' death? I am. You are like we are. It was our sins that put him on that cross. And the other thing to remember is this, that Jesus went willingly. I love it. If you read the gospel, what you see is that Jesus had every opportunity to avoid the cross, but it says that he set his mind 
like a flint, it says, towards Jerusalem, and he went there knowing exactly what awaited him. And the Bible makes it very clear that God had a purpose in this. God had a plan. The reason why Jesus came was so that he would die. And yes, people killed him. It says lawless people killed him, but they did it according to the foreknowledge and the the predetermined plan of God. And so anti-Semitism really is unfounded on the one hand, but secondly, here in Romans 11, it's actually forbidden for us as Christians to be anti-Semitic. He says in verse 20, those branches, the, the Jewish people that were cut off, they were cut off because of unbelief, but now we stand because of faith. But he says, hey, before you get too proud of yourself, thinking that you're better than they are, remember this. He says, verse 22, consider both the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but kindness towards you, provided that you continue in the faith lest you be cut off too. And he says, and if they don't continue in unbelief, then they can be grafted back in. And the point is this, if you cling to Jesus and what he did for you as your only hope for salvation, then you can know that you are totally secure. That is the kindness of God. You can have absolute security. If you are clinging to Jesus and trusting in Jesus, but for the person who isn't trusting in Jesus, see this, there's no such promise. Now, you might be the nicest person in the world. You might have got a 4.0 grade point average, and, and you're just a super nice person. You might be an Eagle Scout and a top Girl Scout, you know? If you haven't personally embraced the gospel and put your trust in Jesus and everything that he did for you personally, then you need to be warned about the severity of God. The message for you isn't look at the kindness of God. The message for you is consider the severity of God, which means consider the fact that God is righteous and he will judge sin. So hopefully the, the result of that will be that you will put your foot over the line and you will put your faith and your trust in Jesus and you will receive that free gift of salvation because of what he did for you. So in God's elaborate and wonderful plan, this is where we're at right now. God has not forsaken Israel. Some branches have been cut off. Some wild branches have been grafted in. But Paul also looks forward to a third stage in this elaborate and wonderful plan. Which, which still lies in the future. And here's stage three. He says, Israel as a whole will put their faith in Jesus, which will lead many more people to embrace the gospel. So Israel as a whole will embrace, uh, put their faith in Jesus, which will lead to many others embracing the gospel. Notice what he says in verse 24. He says, this analogy of the olive tree. He says, one day these natural branches, in other words, the Jewish people who have been cut off, they will be grafted back in. So Paul mentions this in verse 12. He mentions it again in verse 15. He says, if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Think about this. Is he saying that there will come a time in the future when the Jews who by and large have rejected Jesus, there will come a day when the Jews will by and large accept Jesus. They will receive him. And when that happens, it will cause many more people to consider the gospel and put their faith in Jesus. Look at verse 25. He says, I want you to not be unaware of this mystery. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. What he's saying is that there will come a time when the Jewish people as a whole will recognize Jesus as the Messiah. So when it says that all Israel will be saved, we take that in context with a lot of other places where it talks about this phrase, all Israel. It's not referring to every single individual Jewish person. It's referring to the nation as a whole, in general. Put it this way, just as today to be Jewish generally means that you don't 
embrace Jesus as the Messiah, there will come a time when to be Jewish means that as a whole, they do embrace Jesus as the Messiah. There will be this great turning towards Jesus and trusting in Jesus on the part of the Jewish people. And he says that day is coming when the majority of them will embrace Jesus as the Messiah. This is actually interesting because it correlates with something we see in the Old Testament too. The prophet Zechariah talks about this same thing in Zechariah chapter 12. It's really an incredible prophecy there in Zechariah. What Zechariah predicted was that when the Messiah would come, the people of Israel would not actually embrace him right away. They would initially reject him, but that there would come a time when their eyes would be open, the eyes of the Jewish people would be open to understand who he was and recognize the Messiah, who they had rejected, and then they would put their faith in him. And so Paul concludes this section in verse 28. He says, as regards the gospel... They are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. So in other words, right now, the Jewish people seem opposed to the gospel. In Paul's day, they were physically opposing him. He says, but what you need to understand is there's a lot more going on than what meets the eye. God is working out an elaborate and wonderful plan to bring salvation to many people. And it involves his sovereignty and his divine election. It also involves people's obedience to the gospel and, and disobedience and rejecting it. But through all of this, God is working out an elaborate and a wonderful plan for the salvation of many people. And here's the thing that we can take comfort in, in knowing that he is a faithful God who keeps all of his promises. So just as God hasn't given up on Israel, you can know this today. God will not give up on you. Even though they were faithless, God did not write them off. He remained faithful to them, and, and he will do the same in regard to you. And, and we'll finish with just these last few verses in this section which I call throwing fuel on the fire. See, after everything he's talked about for the past 11 chapters, God's righteousness and our unrighteousness— and God's saving grace, which he gives us in Jesus, and how we can be absolutely sure that God will keep his promises, Paul now suddenly just erupts in worship. He can't, he can't go on any longer. He has to just stop. And he says this, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor and who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. See, Paul is writing all these things about God and about the gospel and about salvation and about God's faithfulness. And he gets to the point where he says, you know, some of this stuff is just... It's just a little bit beyond what I can even comprehend or understand. I'm trying my best to, to wrap my mind around it. But at the end of the day, I just got to take a step back and just marvel at who God is. And I worship him both for what I know about him and for what I don't yet understand about him, what's beyond me. And, and this reminds us that, hey, look, you know what? The reason we study the Bible it isn't just so we can fill our heads and fill our notebooks with more information so we can know more stuff than other people do. See, the reason, the purpose behind all of this is so that we might know God, so that we might know his will for our lives. And as we do that, as we look into his word, as we catch a glimpse of who he is, as we consider his greatness and his mercy and his glory, as we consider the sovereignty of God and his faithfulness and his promises and how he works in our lives and how he showers us with goodness, the only proper response is to worship him. See, I've heard it said, and I think rightly so. Someone said this. He said, theology is fuel for worship. Theology is fuel for worship. I mean, think about a fire, right? It's burning, but if you don't add fuel to the fire, the fire will eventually burn out. Like you're driving a car. If you don't put gas in the tank, it just stops going. 
So we never say, well, I'm not into all that theology stuff. I'm just into worshiping God. Well, no, you need fuel for that fire. You need fuel for that engine, right? Getting to know God, getting to know his will. It's like throwing fuel on the fire. It it's gives us something to worship about. It gives us something to worship God for. And we do that in song. We also do that with our lives. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. But for now, we're going to end right here and just reflect on all the things that we've considered in Romans so far. Reflect on what we looked at today. And we're going to just end by, by worshiping God, okay? Lord, as we consider these things, we really say some of these things are just so beyond uh, our understanding. They seem so incredible and so amazing. And Lord, we, we worship you, we praise you for the things that we know about you, but also for the things that we don't yet understand. Lord, you are beyond us. Your ways are higher than our ways. And, uh, and we're thankful for that, Lord. We're thankful that you are a, a God who is bigger and greater and, and wiser and smarter than us. And Lord, I pray for those of us here today who feel like Elijah, they feel discouraged by the circumstances of their lives. Lord, I pray that they would be encouraged knowing that there's a lot more going on behind the scenes. Lord, that your promises to them are yes and amen. They're true and they're faithful because that's the kind of God you are. So Lord, we pray that as we live this life, Lord, you would let our lives be so full of grace, be so full of response to you, Lord, that, that truly would make other people jealous in all the right ways. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.